Heavenly Father, um, whenever we look at Scripture, whenever we open up your word, we are asking to encounter you, the living God. We're asking nothing short of that. These are your words, and they have meaning that is eternal in significance. And that means the greatest need that we have in our hearts and our souls is to see and to embrace whatever it is you have for us today, especially as it pertains to the glory and beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking that you would uh, give me uh, clarity, remove any error from my mouth, and give all of us, myself included and my friends here, um, hearts that are open to receive whatever it is you have for us today, Father God. We ask humbly before you in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Those are the words of God through the prophet Isaiah to uh, the people of God, after the people of God, the nation of Israel, had been sent into exile for embracing false deities, false gods, um, the gods that were embraced by the nations whom they lived around. And um, here, God, in the middle of this devastating breach of covenant that his people have committed, doesn't simply refer to what they've done or imply that what they've done is just idolatry. He depicts it here as adultery because their maker, according to this text, is their husband and the Lord is his name. Though he deserted her for a time because of her sin, with great compassion, it says here, he promises to come back to her, her husband, her redeemer. God says that with an everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. That's his promise to his people. This is the promise of love for his people, a love that will not ever end. And this is the theme of God as a husband to his people um, and his people as his wife. It's woven throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets, and it depicts God's relationship with his people as the relationship between a husband and a wife. This is the covenant of marriage we're seeing here, which is very significant because when we get to the New Testament and Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene, he doesn't just claim to be the Messiah. He doesn't just claim to be the Christ. 
he claims to be one and the same husband. He claims to be this, the husband of the people of God. Repeatedly throughout his ministry, Jesus uses language of a bridegroom and the bride. And he's pointing to this. And so God the Son is the true husband of Israel, his bride or, or his church as it becomes to be known throughout the New Testament. And so this is the focus of the series that we're in right now. We've been spending, last week we looked initially, and we'll be spending the next few weeks looking at this question. What is church? What does it mean to be part of the church, the body of believers that we call the church? And one of the ways that Scripture answers this question very clearly is through this concept of marriage. Um, in this concept that's presented in Isaiah 54 and throughout the New Testament, namely that the church is the bride of God, the bride of Christ Jesus, God the Son. Now, most of us have probably heard that before, that the church is the bride of Christ. Um, But what does that mean? What does it mean for the church to be the bride of Christ? And why is marriage, out of all the possible analogies that God could use to depict this relationship, why does he use, why does he settle on this one specifically, that the church is the bride of Christ? That's what his people are, that the relationship we have with Jesus corporately is like the relationship a wife has with her husband. And so today I'd like to humbly with you explore a passage of Scripture, probably the clearest and most comprehensive passage of Scripture that describes this relationship, um, and ask, why is this so important? Not, not just for, for married people, but really to every single person who belongs to the body of Christ. Why is this so important? So no matter what station of life you find yourself in, whether you are married, unmarried, uh, whether you have no plans for marriage, or whether you really want to be married, Every single person who belongs to the church, um, join me in seeking God's grace to help us understand what this means, because it impacts every one of our lives, all of our lives. And so uh, let's begin with this. Uh, If you could grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 22. Paul here is addressing how husbands and wives interact in everyday life, and he's going to draw us into understanding the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. So I'm going to read, I'm going to start out by reading all 11 verses, and then we're going to start pulling apart sections and looking at them um, specifically and in detail. All right, verse 22, Paul says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord.'" For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves 
His wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, why is this passage about just normal, everyday living? Why is this important? What, what is it about how husbands and wives relate to each other in marriage that helps us understand who Jesus is and how his church relates to him? And uh, Paul doesn't, in this passage, leave us in the dark. He actually spends a good amount of time to, uh, to exposit it. In verses 31, 32, he tells us why this is central to our understanding of what the church is, because he quotes Genesis 2.24. This passage in Genesis 2.24 are God's inspired words over the first man and the first woman as they are being joined together in the covenant of marriage. And this is literally our basis uh, as humans, of understanding what marriage is. And he says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul proceeds to explain why he quotes this passage from Genesis by saying, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, this is a, a massive statement about the meaning of marriage at a very fundamental level. And really, not to put too fine a point on it, what it means to be male and what it means to be female. Paul is saying that the main points of these things, the main point of these things, isn't in their practical application, like the practical application of, of marriage isn't the main point. Fellowship between human beings, uh, Family, procreation, community, all of these things are very, very important, but they're not the main point, Paul says. The main point of marriage is in verse 32. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. That is, the joining together of a husband and a wife, male and female, are not arbitrary inventions that were created by humanity. They are, in fact, by design from the hands of God. And this design's goal, its central focus, is to point to Christ and to point to his church. And so what, really what must undergird everything we, we look at and talk about today, everything we think about when we consider marriage or when we consider just what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, this is the central thing. Namely, that marriage and gender and sexuality, none of these things are designed explicitly to point to our practical application of them, but they are designed explicitly to point to Jesus Christ and his glory. This is, and I, I can't overstate this, this is the foundation of everything we're going to talk about today. It's fundamental for us to understand this text, to, to really understand, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, all of Scripture needs to be looked at in the same way, the same hermeneutic, which is this. If this book is really the Word of God, the way, we, the way we explore it, the way we understand it is by 
starting first with the reality of who God is, and in this text, that's the glory of Jesus Christ, and then working our way from there to what our response is. What does it mean for us to respond to this? If we begin any kind of study in Scripture from the perspective of man or looking at what it means for man specifically right at the beginning, we will have no warrant to believe anything that we arrive at, any conclusions we draw from it. So we need to start with God and work our way to man. And here, to start with God is to begin with the main focus of this text, the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 32. Everything in this passage, everything in this passage is designed to exalt no one but Jesus. And so Paul, as he continues in verse 22, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins with this. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the initial command here from the Spirit-inspired author, Paul, is saying that in, in the relationship of marriage, wives are called by God to submit, that is to respect, to follow, to defer to their husband's lead. He says that the husband is given in the marriage as head, just like Christ is given as head to the church, his body. And therefore, he is beginning to, cut, to draw out a drama that is performed in marriage a drama between head and body. Now, because we all come to this verse, and I know all of us do, with experiential baggage, with uh, philosophical baggage about what we think about these things and about how they relate to us, I really want to clarify at the start of our looking at this text what this isn't. I want to clarify what Submission as to the Lord is not calling us to do. This is not voiceless, uninvolved servitude. It's not Paul's thinking here. Nor does this mean that women are ever called to endure domestic violence or abuse. That's not implied in this text at all. This is not advocating some kind of uh, abusive, domineering masculinity. So if you have that concept in your mind when you hear the word submit or submission, you're not on the same page as the Apostle Paul. He's not thinking of these things. But to be sure, Paul is talking about the word submission. That's not an accident in the text. That's not a mistranslation. Paul and God who inspired him really used that word. And, and when we read it, I mean, in our modern sensibilities, we may think that this feels a little bit like an attack on the value and on the worth of women. It feels outdated to use this language for a lot of people. It feels like it might even be misogynistic and unethical to use this kind of language. And in response, we might feel the desire to go outside of Scripture and try to reverse engineer the meaning of this text, because maybe there was a historical reason he said this, or maybe there was a cultural thing that he was addressing. And we would even try to bring in in our own philosophical interpretation as though the Spirit of God did not inspire Paul to write everything we needed to hear in this passage, and I believe he did. Um, and so I think 
our first step forward here is really humility and to really ask God to teach us what this means. Paul knows that men and women were created in the image of God. He knows that. He knows they are equal in worth and value. And he also knows that in Christ Jesus, there is no delineation of value because we are all one in Christ. That's Galatians 3.28. Paul is the one who told us that. And he makes great efforts to, to mention the many women who are fellow co-laborers with him in the gospel proclamation. Um, and think about Phoebe, for example. Phoebe in, in Romans 16, <laughs> at the beginning of the closing part of this letter, the, the letter to the Romans, probably the greatest piece of literature ever written in the history of the world, just objectively in how much has changed culture and history across um, the span of time since it was written, she was the deaconess of the church of Syncria, and she brought the letter to the Romans. So this isn't a statement in Paul's mind of the inherent value of women or men at all. This is about God-given roles within the context of marriage. Paul's, the point of Paul's command is that gender and sexuality and who we are by God's creation are not these, these meaningless sort of amorphous concepts that we can just define as we please. They are God-given, God-created realities, and they have meaning. In fact, they have infinite worth and value. And that's not an overstatement because they're not designed to uh, focus on the intrinsic value of a man or a woman at all. They are designed to focus on the intrinsic value of Christ Jesus and he is infinitely worthy and infinitely valuable. So marriage, marriage exists to tell a story. To graciously and fearlessly display a confidence toward God by gently and respectfully following the lead of a husband is to tell a story. And that story is about Jesus which is why Paul explains the command as he does. He doesn't leave us wondering, is, was this a cultural thing? Was this a historical thing that you were trying to address? Or is there something else going on here? He explains this, and he would say to maybe us, if we were to say, well, this might be something that was specific to his time. No, this is a universal reality because it's about Jesus, and Jesus is a universal reality. If we were to say this was something specific for a time, we would imply that Paul's point about submission to Christ by the church is equally subjective, and we know that that's not true. So what is the point of submission in this text? What is, what is, why did God do this? It's this, God, in view of exalting his son, Jesus Christ, exalting his son and the work that his son accomplished on the cross, desired to paint a picture in our lives in the act of marriage with Christ as the head and his bride, the church, as the body, that we would see that every day around us, that that would be a reality in our lives. This is the reason marriage exists. Were it not for this, were it not for this, there would be no marriage. There would be no such thing as marriage. This is how God created it. And submission really is simply the recognition that God ultimately holds the husband responsible for leading his wife, for leading his family. 
This doesn't absolve any responsibility from the wife. She's also called to, to be fully responsible, to love and care for her family. But the man of the house is uniquely responsible as the head. And we know this is true from the beginning of the Bible because in the first marriage, when Adam and Eve sinned, though Eve sinned before Adam, God asks Adam what went wrong first. He goes directly to Adam because God had given Adam the command directly. And if Eve had failed to follow that command, then Adam will be called account to it, which is exactly why Paul in in 1 Timothy 2 cites this verse when explaining how God has structured the church. For example, the position of, of elder or overseer, which is effectively the pastor in a church, the one who is shepherding or group of men who are shepherding and leading the church, is a is an office in the church, the only office in the church, that is exclusively held by men. Now, why is that the case? Why would God do it that way? Well, it isn't because women aren't gifted teachers or communicators or leaders. They are those things in spades. The reason is rooted in God's design for responsibility within the church. Leadership in the church and in the home are not about value, the value of a person, our value, or about us getting our own way. They are about bearing responsibility and while doing that, pointing to Jesus. And so to redefine or recast submission here is to miss the whole point of what submission to Christ looks like, what the church should respond with. Because the only reason submission exists at all is not to show man's value, but to show the value of Jesus Christ. And Paul shows here how first the church is to relate to Christ in this story, that every marriage is a rehearsal of this drama, and now he's going to talk to husbands in verse 25. This is what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So this command is probably equally simple, but it's different for sure. God's call for husbands is to love their wives, but not simply love in the way that the world would define that verb, love. This is very different. The love here is directly connected to how Jesus Christ loved the church Namely, that he gave himself up for her. He died for her. He sacrificed himself to meet her needs. All of them. Especially the greatest need she, we, the church, had, and that was our sin and God's justice towards that. Because it says that when he gave himself up for her, he was sanctifying her. He was purifying her through the gospel. That's what washing of water with the word means. It's a reference to Ezekiel 36, 25. And it's the gospel. The only way that we can be forgiven, the only way we can be cleansed, the only way we can be redeemed is through this washing with the gospel. And this is the kind of sacrificial love that God is calling men into when it comes to marriage. And really, the entirety of their family, to be perfectly honest. Um, He is saying very clearly, lay down your lives. Lay them down. Think about this. 
when Paul wants to illustrate how far husbands should go to love their families, he does it with a grisly picture of being pinned to a Roman cross until you suffocate. For them, for their sakes, love them like this. Give yourself to them. So if we envision submission as being the role of the wife, the role of the husband in this drama is very clear. Crucifixion. It is the annihilation of every single selfish impulse a man has. Being the leader in marriage doesn't mean that husbands get their own way all the time or even at all, (laughs) nor is it a matter of qualification or ability or your capacity to do anything. To be a leader here is simply to give up everything for her sake. To be the head in marriage is to die to self every single day in the protection and provision of the wife and the family. It is a unique call to lay down one's life. So again, and I'm going to come back to this over and over again, marriage is not about man, and it is not about woman ultimately. Marriage exists to tell a story very loudly, and that is the greatest of all stories, how Jesus Christ rescued his church. And just like an actor isn't literally the person who they are playing in a a show, a movie, or anything like that, or drama, neither is the husband literally the savior of his wife. He is merely a servant of Christ for the sake of his wife and for the sake of his family. And so if he's not the savior, which Jesus is for the church, how does this role of sacrifice, the husband's role of sacrifice, sacrificial love, work itself out in marriage? Well, Paul labors at that point in verses 28 through 30. So read with me here. He says, in the same way, that is, sacrificially, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So now Paul is showing us that the basis for this kind of sacrificial love is rooted in the unity that a husband has with his wife and that a wife has with her husband, which points ultimately to the unity of Christ with his bride, the church. Jesus loves and nourishes and cherishes the church. It is a deep, deep affection that defines his sacrifice. He is not forced to do this. He is not compelled to do this by an outside force. He simply loves her like he loves his own body. He loves her as deeply as he can. And in fact, next week, we're going to look at what it means for the church to be the body of Christ um, which is compelling in its own way. But right here, back to the bride of Christ, this is the kind of love and affection that that God is calling all husbands to show to their wives, to sacrificially love and care for her like she's your own body, like she is physically connected to you, not because you're her savior at all, but because your job is to point her with great frequency, great passion, great delight to her savior, Christ Jesus. who is your savior too. This is the parable and the drama of marriage. Marriage is designed to hold this out constantly and it is intended to display 
this great story of Jesus' sacrificial love for his bride. That's the ultimate purpose of marriage. Intermingled in many other glorious purposes, amazing purposes, is this main one to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know this because of verses 32 through 33. I don't even know if we've got them. But um, God created marriage to point to Christ and the church. That was always plan A. That was always plan A. This wasn't a change up or a snag along the way. This was always God's design. And Adam, at the very beginning of human history, the first man who was called to the same sacrificial love that all husbands after him are called to, failed to protect his wife Eve from the serpent and its lies. And this is the point that's made by 1 Timothy 2.14 when it says that Adam sinned willfully. Adam wasn't deceived. Not in the same way that Eve was. Adam sinned willfully because Adam refused to trust God's command. And so in this very first picture of this drama, Adam fails at a catastrophic level by not trusting God's word. And then Eve fails by submitting to the words of the serpent over the word of Adam and over the word of God. And this is a devastating scene. It is a devastating event when sin deluges into the world and we all become both victims and perpetrators alike of the same crime. We are all like Adam and Eve in so many ways. But here's the glorious thing. Jesus Christ isn't like Adam at all or us He isn't at all. And this is where hope shines very brightly, the very hope that the drama of marriage is intended to hold out. Where Adam failed, Jesus Christ has victory. Romans 5 tells us that as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam in the garden right at the beginning, The many were made sinners. That's us. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus. The many will be made righteous. That's the church. This is a stunning picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. The very act of redemption that we were looking at in the first passage we looked at in Isaiah 54. The work of redeeming God's people as a bride for himself through the cross. This is it. This is the meaning of marriage. The sacrificial love of Christ Jesus for his bride and her gracious submission coming underneath the loving embrace of her husband. This is the purpose of marriage, to paint this picture of of submission and sacrifice. Humble submission by the church to Christ as our husband and recognition of the sacrifice that he made to secure it. And again, I want to just circle back to something I said earlier. If we think this reality is only participated in by people who are married, we're wrong. We're wrong. We need to remember that, that both submission and sacrifice are, are not only for marriage. They are for every person who calls Christ their Savior. Submission and sacrifice are the defining realities of the life of a Christian. To submit to the word of Christ And to submit to others in humility um, is a universal application for every Christian in the world. 
No one's off the hook for submitting. Christianity is not about selfishly seeking to place honor or uh, to, 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 to have a place of honor or to have a position of authority. It's not about that. It's about humbly laying down your desires and submitting to one another. In fact, the text right before we got to the section on wives and husbands in Ephesians 5.21 commands all Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We submit to each other for the glory of Jesus. So submission is universal in the Christian church. And Christianity is also about sacrifice. Every Christian is called to sacrifice. Every Christian, male or female, is called to take up their cross and follow Jesus to forsake our life in this world for his sake and for his glory. Ephesians 5 begins with the command for all believers to walk in love, just like Christ, who gave himself up to God as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, loved us. So to, to lovingly sacrifice your time, energy, your life is to worship God. It's, it's, it's the undergirding of what it means to be a Christian, whether you are married or whether you are not. But here's the deal, and this is an important point to make, an important dis- distinction to make. Sacrifice is not sought by the Christian ultimately, nor is submission to one another. That is not an ultimate end in our lives. They are merely means to an end. They are means to an end, and here's why. Because it is no sacrifice at all to lose everything in this world and to gain Jesus Christ forever. That is not a sacrifice. That is an a unfair trade for the someone who takes everything in, in, instead of Jesus. It is not a sacrifice at all to lose all that you have in this life and to gain Christ. And it is not submission either, ultimately, to humbly bow to all authority in this world and to each other in the present in order to reign with Christ in ages to come, only submitting to him and his Father for all eternity. So the Christian uses submission and sacrifice in this present life to point to Jesus and his glory. Whether we're married, whether we're single, no matter what it is, if you're a Christian, this is your call in this world. Everything we do, say, think, must point to the supremacy of Jesus. This is the point of submission. It's the only point of submission. This is the only point of sacrifice. They are a pathway to our husband, Christ, which brings us to a key juncture in this passage in Ephesians. What was it that Jesus achieved when he died in sacrificial love for his bride, the church? What did he accomplish? What did he achieve? What was Christ after ultimately in paying the price to remove every stain of sin that we just read about in Romans 5? What was he accomplishing there? Well, Ephesians 5.27 tells us why it is that Christ died for his bride. It says that Christ died so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And what we're looking at in this one verse is a wedding. 
It's a wedding. A bridegroom who is paid the bridal dowry for his wife with his own blood, his own life. And the bride is presented here in extraordinary splendor. That's the scene that Paul's engaging here. The final scene before the bridegroom. You know this. You've been to weddings before. Before the bridegroom lifts the veil and kisses his wife. And they begin to live together in holy matrimony. This is the scene. A pure, spotless bride without a single blemish, without a single spot of sin, standing before her husband in the greatest of honor, cherished by him completely. This scene is why marriage exists. If this scene wasn't a reality in the future, there would be no such thing as marriage. There isn't a greater reason than this. Every other reason, as grand and as important and as critical as they are to society, to culture, to everything, pales in comparison to this one moment when we are gathered together next to Christ. So in a few moments here, we're going to be participating in worship through the Lord's Supper, um, which is our way of remembering and memorializing the sacrifice that Jesus achieved on that cross, that he committed to on that cross for his bride. And so to close, what I want to do is I want to take you all the way to the end of this book. And I want to take you to the last few pages of Scripture to a scene that will tell us how glorious this last day will be. This isn't fiction. I really want you guys to get this. This day is more real than anything you've experienced in your life so far. This is not a wish, not just a hope and a prayer. This is reality. We are headed towards this day. This day is going to happen. This day will happen. And every, every single thing that has separated us from him will be removed. Gone forever. And on the doorstep of eternity, there is a wedding. And the church is invited as a bride of honor. This is the drama. This is the story that we've all been called into. So as we read this, I want you to think about it and reflect on your own life, how you relate to Christ, if you're married, how you relate to your spouse, and the beauty of the gospel by which we're saved. Revelation 21 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's us. That's the church. That's the church coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, 
nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. As you receive elements, these elements of communion, the body and the blood, the, the, the bread and the cup, please do everything in your power. Plead with God to recognize, to recognize and embrace the cost of sacrifice that he paid for his bride, us, us. He paid for us by his own blood so that all the trauma that Adam and Eve experienced at the lies of the serpents, all the trauma that in sin and destruction that the nation of Israel experienced in their own idolatry and everything we struggle with every single day will be removed. It'll be gone. It will be ancient history. All sin, all pain, gone forever. Every spot of sin from your life removed. Removed. And every tear will be wiped away. And we will be with him in his presence for all eternity. That is what we, the bride of Christ, were made for. We were made for that. We were made for that. That's why we're here. That's why we were born, and that's why we live, is to be with him, to be with Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, we do not have the capacity in our frail, weak, finite bodies to fully comprehend all that that passage in Revelation 21 is talking about. Or to understand the glory that will be ours when we see our husband, Christ Jesus, for the first time. But what we're asking for here, Father, as we worship, as we turn our hearts to you in song and in celebration of the Lord's Supper, is for your Holy Spirit to come and to as much as you are pleased to, Father God, open our souls to receive this truth that we are corporately the bride of Christ and that he purchased us at the greatest cost to himself so that we would be with him forever. That that would invade every ounce of our lives, every aspect of our lives would be overwhelmed by the fact that this is what Jesus has done for us and that we would, whether married or single, give our lives over to submission and sacrifice to each other and to you, knowing that one day we will not have sacrificed anything in vain, nor will any of our submission matter in the end, Father, because we will be with you and we will be with your Son. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.